0: As, as we now get into the Christmas spirit, let me see if this is... Oh, well, amen, yeah. There we go. Uh, the, the title of my sermon today is A Conversion Carol. Now, we all have different Christmas traditions that you probably hold near and dear to your heart. And for, for me, I've got a lot of maybe marginal ones that maybe don't have Jesus at the very center but boy, do I make sure that I never miss certain things at Christmas time. You know, one of them is to, you know, either drive through Newport News and see all of the lights that are there with the family. That's a that's a huge, big one. Uh, but there's a really big one for me. And it's every year on the Friday before Christmas, David Letterman on the late night show for 28 years in a row has run the same show. And it's his Christmas show. And there's a bunch of fun things that happen on it. Uh, he and Jay Thomas have a competition throwing footballs to knock the meatball off the top of his of his uh, Christmas tree. There's not a lot with Jesus in that, I understand. And, and, but then at the end, the thing that really gives me goosebumps, even though it's not a kind of a religious holiday song, is Darlene Love comes out and for 28 years she sings the song Christmas, you know, Please Baby Come Home. And you know what I'm like crying at this stupid song and and just like oh it's christmas time how great is this and and you know I I'm, I'm I'm inserting Jesus they're not of course but I'm like uh, but but you know that it's it's because of Jesus. And yeah, it's easy to go the bah humbug route and say, well, you know, this is really based on the summer solstice. And once the sun was getting higher in the sky, it was a pagan ritual to celebrate all of that. And Saturnalia. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You're telling me that by us being able to proclaim Jesus during this time of year, that somebody might take a misstep and fall into Saturnalia worship. No way. Give me a break. I mean, yes, you could, you could be pious in that way all you want. But you're majoring in some minors. We need to be astounded that God disrupted humankind with the incarnation of his very own son sent not only to live for us, but to die for us. How astounding is that humbling of God to go from seated at the right hand of God to being humble to becoming a servant and one who dies on a cross because of my filthy, defiling sin. What in the world? Praise God that we have a chance to be able to recognize God's decision to stop us in our tracks. Yeah. And if we pin it to this time of year, fair enough. I'm, I'm fired up whenever it would be. I'm sure no matter what date we ever picked for the for the incarnation of of God, there'd be some pagan holiday in history somewhere that somebody would figure. You know, so, don't worry about that. Just enjoy the fact that God disrupted our lives. Come Praise boy. God. Good job, man. But the, you know, the, the other one that from a very early age was such a, because I remember being very young and watching a Christmas carol, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, that whole deal. And boy, oh boy, did that scare the bejesus out of me as a kid or maybe into me. I forget what would be the best way to say that. But, you know, I mean, when, when Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, he goes up to the knocker and the, the lion's face turns into, into Marley's face. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on in the, you know, and then, the, the, you know, he, he comes in and he, he's, he's got all of his chains, the first ghost. And he says, three more ghosts are coming your way. And I remember just like, can I even make it through this show as a little kid? It was so fr- and If you ever watch a live performance and you're a little kid, I mean, you're like in your mom's lap the whole time. Like, tell me when they're gone. Tell me when they're gone. But I, but I do remember, though, the kind of the radical change that affected Scrooge during all of this. And, and it's such a beloved, you know, because, I mean, think of all the different ways that that thing has been reproduced over the years, whether it's Jim Carrey and Disney or, I mean, Scrooge McDuck. I mean, come on, Mr. Magoo had a musical version of it. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's been various and sundry ways, but always what is it that captures our imagination of that? I don't think it's just that he goes from bah humbug to, hey, you know, Christmas not so bad after all. But that there's something that all of us really desire to see that kind of radical change. And it it really is presented by Dickens as a change that really is long lasting and a change that is sincere, genuine, without guile. And and one that is really uh, going to change the course, not only of that man's life of Scrooge, but of but of others lives as well. Uh, And so what what better thing as we look at this season to look at why Jesus came? He came. So that we could really and truly change ourselves. Now, I don't mean change in and of ourselves, but that we ourselves have the ability to really allow him to come and affect that change in our lives. And, and, and so as I, I ponder even a Christmas carol, a, you know, for the sake of today, I'm, I'm calling it a, a conversion carol. Uh, we, we have in Scrooge an astounding before and after picture. One that Scripture actually shows us many, many times over. For, for example, when Paul writes about who we are as Gentiles, and we're all Gentiles here, don't mean to offend you, but you're a Gentile. No kinder way to say that. But here thinking of Michael Scott. Uh, and is there a less offensive word I could use here. Uh, Ephesians four. If you could just, well, if you want to follow, you know what? Do what you want. Ephesians four says in verse 17, I tell you this and insist in it on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That's the before picture that's painted there of every one of us. And as as Paul rightly describes it, we are so depraved that we are darkened in our ability to understand the life that god wants for us we are separated from the life of god make no mistake as we decided to indulge our flesh and take the path of sin and build up a separation between us and god and even though we may think we're so wise there is really an ignorance that is in us due to the hardening of our hearts and the the more that we think we're wise the more that we harden our hearts against the real truth that can truly deliver us, that that is available to us in God. Now, here's the amazing thing that that he writes here, because if that's the, the radical, nasty before picture, now, right after that, juxtaposed in Scripture by Paul, is this description of the after picture of all of us. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Now, that's all pretty radically different. But look at how he describes the new self. And hold on to your seats here, because this is the way that he describes us in the after picture and to put on the new self created to be like God. God. Exactly. Really? Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I could have gone to one of a half dozen scriptures with just the exact before and after picture that is described in the conversion process, in our conversion carol, as it is enjoyed in each of our lives. When Jesus intervenes, disrupts our way of life and really awakens us to the nasty, ignorant, hardened, depraved path that we were on, only to be able to kind of, in a sense, shake us, help us to come back to our senses, and to recognize what it was that he's had in store for us all along. Something we feared, something that we've avoided, something that we've justified ourselves from not going anywhere into the vicinity, but nonetheless, something that always has been awaiting us by God's great grace. Now, in Scrooge, in his before picture, here's how Dickens describes him. And I'll read from... A Christmas carol here. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out a generous fire, secret, self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, a wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thought one degree at Christmas. There he is. Now, at the end of this little novella that he writes, and it is a very short book, He writes, and and this is Scrooge's proclamation after been uh, intervened by these spirits. Here's, Here's the after picture of Scrooge. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intervention. Why, show me this if I am past all hope. I will honor Christmas in all my heart. Keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Hear me. I am not the man I was. The spirits of all three. I'm sorry. I'm reading that again. When he awakens on Christmas morning, there is such a radical difference in him versus where he was just four days earlier before the intervention of these spirits. Now, here's what's interesting is how does such a radical conversion come about scripturally? How is it that we can go from hardened, depraved, ignorant to being like God in true righteousness and holiness? And likewise, even in this little caricature of a novella, how does this man go from where he was to where we find him at the very end? How is it that any of us, how is it that I went from from one who was so ridiculously shallow an empty suit of selfish ambition filled with lust and greed and deceit? I would drop a lie just as easily as a truth if it could get me and gain me anything whatsoever. I'd drop an expletive if I I thought it would bring about a smile in someone's face and have no regard for Jesus, even though I went to church every week and went to a Bible study on Monday nights. How did I go from that to really having the core of my soul shaken to where I recognized, wow, I was so wrong. And by the way, the whole time thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good guy because I go to church. That, that I could be awakened from, from my ugliness to, to realize to the depth of my soul with a fear that cleanses and ultimately a joy that exalts that God is not done with me and what he has in store for me is beyond even my imagination. And then to run after it and to truly run after it. Uh, it, it is astounding. And you know, any of us that has really been converted, repented, the depth of what, what repentance really entails scripturally, any of us could get up right now and share what it was like and, and what it was like now. And, and in every case, there'd be a hallelujah, amen, and, and a little bit of a goosebumps of, of realizing, wow, that's true, person after person. I could... Pop up like popcorn amongst this fellowship right now and to see the work that God has done. And it's not some fleeting, and I was so convicted by the preacher that I came forward and I cried and I said, I'm going to really get it on straight, only to four months later not look like anything of what I thought I would be. Went back to right where I was and worse in some cases. That's not biblical repentance. That's just a feeling of guilt that you're trying to assuage. And all you're you're doing is putting a temporary band-aid on it. What I'm talking about is what the Holy Spirit really does for us as he does drill down to help us see at the core of our being how it is that God wants us when he intervenes in our life through Jesus to really have the fullest effect. And to understand this, this is what's interesting. Scrooge is then met by three spirits after this event. And the first spirit is the ghost of Christmas past. Right, and this ghost brings him back, and he shows him, you know, what what he was like as a child, some of his sadness, and also some of his missteps along the way. Followed by this big, like haggard-looking ghost, uh, the ghost of Christmas Present, who shows him what's going on all around him that his uh, hardened heart was unable to see, and then ultimately, the spirit of Christmas yet to be comes to him. And that looks like the grim reaper, if you know. You know this, this spirit never says a word, only at the end does he lift a bony hand and he, he points to the, the, the tombstone um, that, that awaits him. And so we, we have these, these three spirits that come to him. Now, this is what's interesting. And I don't know, Dickens you know, had some version of Christianity, but he did get some things rather interestingly on the mark here. In John 16, if you want to turn there as well, I'll take a peek at that. We have a great insight from scripture, but also from the lips of Jesus as how his intervention was going to be affected by into everyone's hearts all over the world. What he did was so monumental. He wasn't going to leave it to chance that we would be able to be affected by this or not affected by this. And so here's what he says to his disciples at the Last Supper before he's about to ascend into heaven and before he's about to go to the cross, of course, too. He says to them in verse seven. John 16, 7. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good. And in some translations, it is to your advantage. In other words, it's a better thing right now that I am going away. Now, if you've been hanging with Jesus for three, three and a half years and learning from him, astounded by him, protected from, from uh, the, the Pharisees and religious hypocrisy by him, you've been taught, modeled, all of that going on. If you're sitting there at this intimate dinner and you hear your master, your rabbi, your Lord, your Messiah now say to you, hey, you know what? This is this is such a good night for you guys, (laughs) because it's actually better off that I'm going to leave you right now. And what? How is that better? Wait, leave us. What will we do? How how is this going to work out? And he says. It is to your advantage, it is to your good that, that I go away. Because unless I go away, I'm still in verse seven, the advocate. Now, the advocate is also mentioned by him in 15, chapter fifteen, twenty-six, and fourteen, twenty-six. And in both of those cases, he delineates the advocate as being. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I've said. And so when he says the advocate here, he's specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. So. But if I, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit or the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. When he comes, he will convict the world with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the big three that we need to be convicted about. And the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus as He ascends into heaven, now is no longer limited by the Incarnation. Jesus comes in the Incarnation to be able to fulfill all righteousness, to provide the sacrifice that that is meant for all of us, but then to, in a sense, take off the limits. He then goes to be able to allow the Holy Spirit to then have unfettered access to every single one of us, and He is able to convict us all sufficiently of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, that word convict is a courtroom term that Jesus uses. The original language, it's elenco. We've talked about it in older lessons. But it is very much the idea, not just to make you feel bad, not just to condemn you, but it is as though someone who's sitting with you, trying to reason with you, to help me, to, in a sense saying, let me help you see the way that you have erred. Let me show you the way that you're off track and the path to get on the right track so that in the end you can repent. It's as though you're on trial before Holy God and you're being convicted in a good sense, busted, you know, hand in the cookie jar. You got me DNA evidence, voice track, all of that. Jerusalem CSI, you know, yeah, dead to rights. Here we go. But, but at the end of that trial for you to realize, all right, it's no sense trying to defend myself anymore. This, this facade that I keep putting up, this pretense of, of being okay has been busted up time and time again by the Holy Spirit. Maybe, finally, it's time to surrender and I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court and plead once and for all and admit once and for all, guilty. I'm guilty. What do I need to do? Maybe nothing. I don't know. Maybe you're a merciful judge. But oh my goodness, all I know is I'm guilty. And that's what the Holy Spirit does here through this amazing ministry. Now, it doesn't, may not feel amazing at the moment. It may feel like, oh, did you, really? You're going to like bust me on this too? Oh, re- oh, don't you forget anything? I mean, it, it all does get, get exposed in a beautiful sense. But by being exposed, it helps us to realize, you know what? Time to stop acting like it ain't broke. Because if it ain't broke, I won't fix it. But when I finally see with the depth of clarity that the Holy Spirit provides that broken, then some. Can't believe I ever pretend it was anything but. All right, it's broke. Please help me. And I remember sitting down, studying the Bible the very first time. And, uh, and for me, I always heard these people that I was studying the Bible with talking about one another as though they were disciples. I, I knew it sounded kind of religious-y. And it probably was in the Bible. But I just thought they were weird. Why can't you just say Christian? And, and as they talked about what disciples did and the expectations of disciples and as Jesus called people to live as disciples, I put this little construct in my head saying, that's fine. You all go be disciples. I'll just be a Christian. I'm, you know, I'll just be a simple Christian folk. And you go do that disciple you know, overachieving thing that you all want to be trying to do over there. And, and the Holy Spirit orchestrated it amazingly well. That as I sat down at that dining room table with these guys in the nation of Texas, they opened the the Bible and right away it, it looked at the connection between a disciple and a Christian. And it basically talked about how the church began to spread. And about 10, 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus, 10, 12 years later, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And thankfully, my mind was at least not so dull that I didn't understand the connection there. And I put the pieces together, realizing, wait a minute. That means there's no difference between a disciple and a Christian. Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> my whole little theory of, oh, I'll be a Christian and none of those scriptures on disciple apply to me. And you be disciples and you go after all that stuff. Suddenly, that all got busted as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember turning to the guy said Bible and said, I'm dead. I'm dead wrong, which is very hard for me to say, that I'm wrong. But I'm dead wrong, and I'm dead. I'm surely dead. Given, like, once you'll know all about me, I'm dead. You know what? If, if you're willing to help me out, I'm, I'm ready to try to figure this out. And, and so, and, you know, two weeks later, I had really repented and baptized into Christ and, and praise God, you know, for, for, for all of that. But it, the Holy Spirit wants that for every one of us, and he's done that for every one of us. And it is interesting that even in in, uh, the, the little morality play that Dickens writes here on the Christmas carol, what is it that Scrooge is convicted of? Well, he's convicted of sin, righteousness, and ultimately judgment. The ghost of Christmas present opens his eyes to the needs of those around him. To Bob Cratchit and his family. To Tiny Tim, who's dying and he's not helping. If anything, Scrooge in his uh, in his greed is, is actually limiting the resources that that family has. But yet, even at that family dinner, as he watches with the ghost of Christmas present with him, they say a prayer for Ebenezer Scrooge at that dinner. Yeah. And he is just convicted to the core of the filthy self-centeredness of his life. And, and of righteousness. You know, we all think we're... More righteous earlier in our life a lot of times. But when I was a sweet little boy, I know I had really high aspirations and maybe just things got off course at some point. So the ghost of Christmas past brings him back to when he maybe could have thought that about himself. But what he did see though was real righteousness in his sister Fan and in um, uh, Fizzy Wig, his original boss. And he saw in them righteous examples. Now we see it in Christ, praise God, and, and it is Christ, even according to John 16, 9, who really does convict us of righteousness. But he was able to, at least in this little story, be able to see a righteousness that made his own concept of righteousness. And his righteousness was, I work hard, I provide, I'm not like those freeloaders out there. Good thing for the prison houses, a good thing for the work yards, because that's where they need to go if they're not willing to work. That was his righteousness. And everybody, no matter how wicked we become, or no matter how subtly good we think we are, we have a way of, of in a sense, justifying our righteousness. Yeah. We all do. And at our core, you may think, you know what? Yeah, I, I may get blind drunk and, and vomit, but I'm a happy drunk. I'm a good guy. Yeah, you know, I, I may look at pornography and masturbate, and all, but, you know, who am I really hurting? Through, through, through all of this. Yeah, you know, I, I may be flirting a little bit at work. But, you know, hey, hey, at least I'm not like doing anything more than that. I mean, it doesn't matter what level, how great or small or in between or whatever it is. We all do it. We all do and And, and because we're so good at it, we need a supernatural intervention yeah. through the Holy Spirit, through His Scriptures, through through friends that will love us enough to be able to speak truth, to be able to intervene and show us, well... Yeah, you 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 may have good intentions, but let's let's look at it according to the biblical standard. Yeah. And wow, wow. And, and and you know what? It is difficult. It's difficult to be busted like that, but how refreshing it is to have that depth of really being busted, of, of really being open to what it is that that God wants to do for us. And then ultimately, having been convicted of sin, of righteousness, well, there's one last conviction that really needs to be driven home that the Holy Spirit does for us, that Jesus says, and that is judgment. That there is Something bigger that hangs in the balance of all of this. There is an age to come. This is not the ultimate end. We don't die and lights out. There is an eternity that waits. It's either a place of torment and, and horrors, or it is a place of bliss, of beauty, and of joy of all times. A new heaven and a new earth A a paradise life where we get new bodies, praise God, and and be able to live and run and play and dance and and rejoice and and have fellowship with one another. And we see the face of God and judgment is what's going to sort all of that out. And if we don't get real serious about humbling out to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of sin, righteousness and judgment, well, then then what, what awaits is what Scrooge saw. And in, in his little encounter with the ghost of Christmas yet to be and, and to, to see he was able to look into the future and really be able to see the effects of all of that. Well, the scripture gives us that as well. And and by by the way, when the scriptures sufficiently convict you of sin, righteousness and judgment, it is an astounding place to end up. And it is really, in some senses, terrifying, but only for a second because then as soon as that happens then we're given grace by God and we're shown it scripturally we're shown it by friends but we're also really given it you know even even watching you know Caleb and Cody and all these guys that are you know getting after Tony just a little while before that I mean, even, you know, I was in some of Kobe's uh, uh, studies recently and I remember him like, oh, oh my goodness, I never realized all of this. The Bible is so clear. Oh, I'm such a mess. What am I going to do? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's like, okay, turn the page. Let's, let's look at grace. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, this can all be mine. I mean, he's, he's very, you know, excited. This can all be mine. Very exciting. Uh, this can all be mine. And, and, and really, and, and, you know, and today it will be. I mean, how, how great, tremendous is that? And, and for all of us as well, this is very much the case. Now, in the Bible, we, we have um, so many stories of conversions, obviously. I mean, Paul's conversion is legendary. The Philippian jailer, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the Zacchaeus up in the tree. But I think one of the ones that, that really does show what Jesus does and then what Jesus wants to do through the Holy Spirit. And turn with me over to John 4. Come on. And what he does is he convicts us. And right before this story in John 4 starts, there's an interesting bit of teaching that is given in the previous chapter. And I'm going to read from that in in John 3. It says in John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And that light is Jesus, by the way. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You know, even as I talk about this work of the Holy Spirit, some of you are like, amen, that would be cool, I think. But, A lot of us are still thinking, oh, yeah, you know what? That probably would be necessary. But maybe uh, not today. And maybe, I don't know, let me finish my degree. Uh, Let me get married. Uh, Let me have my fourth kid. Uh, Let me get old. Let me retire. But we, we all want to put it off. Why? Because of what the scripture says here. Light has come, but because we love darkness, because our deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And it is fear. Fear, some perceived shame, whatever it might be. But you know what? Time to, time to be a big boy or girl, really. The Holy Spirit has such glory that awaits every one of us. Why, why let Satan instill that fear? Keep us from the grace that really is waiting to be ours. Grace is not going to come just because we say, Hey, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if I really want to get real about all this, Jesus. But just, you know what? Shoot me some blessing anyway, okay? What an what a, uh, insult. A horrid insult to the death of Jesus. That like, You know what? Maybe I'll take it on my terms. Thanks for coming and dying for my sins, by the way. But uh, I don't know if I want to even admit to those sins. But I'll take the benefits nonetheless. Well, anyway, Jesus has this intervention here with this, this woman at the well. And he, he begins to talk with her. And it's, a, it's an odd thing for a, a Jew to sit and talk with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. And when, he, when he's talking with her, it says in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. I guess I didn't have to give that as a little bit of a precursor, huh? Because it's right here. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water sounds cool, right? So she says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So I don't have to get thirsty and I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's obviously confused. She's still thinking that, hey, you know, we don't have a bucket. Living water just means moving water, by the way. And a spring is moving water. It's good water. Um, She's like, wow, so I can have a spring somehow inside me? Sounds sweet. So she, she has this confusion. And in the midst of kind of getting her off balance, Jesus brings it. And how does he bring it? He says to her, hey, go call your husband and then come back. And she at that moment, whether we know it or not yet, is saying in her mind, busted. She says, I humana, humana, humana. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. I don't know if he says it like that. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Busted. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she tries to misdirect. Why? Because nobody likes the light. And what happens when our life is being exposed by God? Well, we want to change the dialogue and reframe the conversation. Why don't we discuss doctrine right now? I'd like to understand the finer points of that whole IOU system that that guy was talking about during communion. and. Um, you know, in double-entry accounting, wasn't that uh, Luca Pacioli from Venice who actually invented uh, double-entry bookkeeping? Yeah, how about we talk about that? You know, because the Venetians, they were, they were great traders, and they really uh, you know, helped to really expand the ability to have, you know, books that would be able to uh, you know, allow Venice to become the great power that it was during that time. You know, so she, she's, she's doing something like that. She's like, you know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you choose claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's what he's trying to get at here. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, he goes on to be able to have a conversation with her that's not fully recorded. But later on, we learn what what she says, because jump down to verse 39. She goes back to her town and it says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And here we have a little mini Christmas carol, conversion carol as well. And because of Jesus exposing, convicting, uh, reproving this woman's life, yes, is it easy to do? No. Is it fun at the moment? No. But it's necessary. We don't want to be some jive bunch of false prophets who bandage the wound lightly and claim as though we've really been doing the work of God. There are plenty compromises of Christianity that exist out there. And you've come to a place where people really have repented, where they've been affected fully by the intervention of Jesus through his Holy Spirit and where, amen, we've we've actually allowed the Spirit to do that work in us. And you know what's interesting is when you repent, it's not a time where then, oh, I've repented and, you know, when I ask people, tell me what repentance means to you. And they say, well, it's kind of like when you feel really bad and you cry and you pray and you say, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That's not even close, by the way. Not even close to being close. Yeah, there is sorrow for that sin and there is a pain that is recognized when we're exposed. But it doesn't leave you in that state at all. And instead, let me just describe to you as the Bible describes it. Godly sorrow, this sorrow... Brings repentance and it leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, brings death. But see what this godly sorrow, what this woman has had, what what Scrooge has had. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. There's a seriousness. There's an idea that this is going to get done. What eagerness to clear yourself. There's no foot dragging. There is no procrastination. There's like, let's get after this thing. What indignation. That's a righteous anger. Not at the person trying to provoke you, not at the Holy Spirit, not at God, but at the sins that I've committed. There is an indignation. What alarm? Ah, oh my goodness. Now I see a fear. What longing? Why longing? Every time the word is used in the New Testament by Paul, it is a situation where he is separated from the people that he loves. Eleven times he talks about longing to see you. Because he's been separated. Why is that here? Because what do our sins do? It separates us from our relationship with God. And when we're convicted deeply by the Holy Spirit, we come to fear, indignation, and then the real powerhouse of this is a longing, a love, to be back where we were always meant to be. You were always destined to be united with Christ. No matter what kind of circuitous, crazy path you may be on right now, that you think, I don't know how I'm going to get there from here, that is your destiny. It is God's will for your life. And then we begin to long what zeal, this is not a uh, whatever, it's a whatever it takes, and what readiness to see justice done. Hey, even if it means i got to like, deal with some stuff right now, and it's not going to be easy with my relationships with Jesus, even with my own life or finances or whatever, that's fine. What do I care? I'm getting right with God. I'm ready to see justice done. At every point you proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, amen, but what we need to be is we, we, we have been born of the Holy Spirit. We are children of light. We're to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but we are rather to expose them. Same word, to convict the courtroom term of, of, of being able to do that. And I love the description of a church in 1 Corinthians. It says this. Uh, Paul writes to the church there. It says, if an unbeliever or a seeker comes in while everyone is prophesying that is speaking the word of god they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all the secrets of their hearts are laid bare and though they will and so they will fall down and worship god exclaiming god is really among you and so how does this exposing work of the holy spirit come about in plenty of ways the word of god for sure it's it's inspired by the holy spirit the Spirit Himself is going to arrange time and place and circumstances. He's going to put righteous examples in your life. He's going to help you see the clarity of sin. He perhaps even through Scripture will make it abundantly clear about judgment to come. Perhaps He'll put a person that cares enough to be able to even guide you to take a look at the Scriptures and all of this. There are plenty of ways that the Holy Spirit does this. He is, he is not limited in any way how He can go about this. But you know what can limit Him is us. You know, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, as he tries to be an agent of the Holy Spirit and bring conviction on those that are persecuting him and they refuse, he says, oh, you're so stiff-necked. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Scrooge, praise God, didn't remain stiff-necked through those journeys. And all of us, as we sit here right now, what work does the Holy Spirit want to do in you? What does he want to expose? What does he want to bring out? What does he want to make clear so that it can be brought before the table of grace and really made right by the blood of Jesus Christ? What is that thing? My goodness, why, why let it sit? Why not really begin to really enjoy all that that is, is really meant to be for you? Oh, these are all the scriptures I read. <laughs> Remember what I did, but in the end, the beauty of uh, of the Christmas Carol and the beauty of of the New Testament conversions, as one after another go on their way rejoicing. When we see Scrooge on Christmas morning, he's a great model of repentance. As you saw there, repentance is about earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, zeal, ready to see justice done. Matter of fact, when when the first massive Mounts of people after the preaching of Jesus are converted in the beginning of the book of Acts. Paul, uh, Peter says to them, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You want a good bottom line litmus test if you've really biblically repented? Well, at the end, you're not feeling, oh, oh, this is a burden. No, it is lifted. It is beautiful. I don't think the same way anymore. I'm not afraid to, to that I'm going to be ensnared in the same way anymore. I am set free. I have a new life, new passions, new agendas, new affections, new allegiances. And they are all now truly the way that I'm going to live my life. And, and so we rejoice and times of refreshing come. When Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning... Would you think we'd expect if he's going to model repentance, according to the worldview, that he gets and he's in bed and he wakes up and he realizes, ah, I'm, I'm not in hell. OK, that's pretty good. <laughs> and instead of getting on the side of the bed and crying like most people try to describe repentance, he doesn't do that. And, and, and here's here's uh, it says Charles Dickens may have had a bit of a handle on repentance because he paints Scrooge facing in the right direction. Not backwards, uh, ruining his sin, but rather forward. Mm -hmm. He had no desire to obsess over the past when he came to his senses and realized he was back in his room and now he had new life and a new chance. Barely able to express the full joy of true repentance. This is what it says. He was so fluttered, so glowing with good intentions that his broken voice could scarcely answer to his call. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge. Laughing, crying, all in the same breath. Making a perfect lacoon of himself. Whatever a lacoon is, ask ask the Brit. Uh, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. Happy New Year to all. Whoop, whoop, hello. Whoop, whoop. I'm reading from from the book. Whoop, hello. I think you brought a little Bruce in there. His, his inner transformation instantly extended outward. He was repentant. He was a reformed man. And he pledged that his change was not just the product of an emotion. And he was better than his word, the book concludes. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city knew, town, borough, or good old world. Some people laughed to see him in his altered state, but let them laugh. And he little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter at the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle their eyes and grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and this was quite enough for him. And the last words of the book, as Dickens ends his tale of, of repentance, it's an exhortation for the rest of us. And may that truly be said of all of us, of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. And I pray that God blesses us with the intervention of the Holy Spirit, with humble hearts to receive it, and in the end, with a repentance that leads to salvation. Merry Christmas.